Well, this is it. Uh, this is my last time at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning to stand uh, with you guys. It's been said uh, by others, people that have gone before us, uh, that we should, as pastors and leaders, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. And I have no means and plans of dying anytime soon, but I do hope and pray that today we can do what I've done every Sunday morning, that I've been with you, and talk about Jesus, and talk about why He's so great. And so while there's going to be a lot of emotions running through my mind and heart, and maybe many of yours, uh, my prayer for us is that we will make much of Christ today. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Heard the story about a man in Georgia who was found beat up. Uh, behind a gas station. Uh, Police found him, rushed him to the hospital because of his injuries, and as they began, the hospital staff began to administer care to this man, they realized that he had amnesia. He didn't know who he was. And so some days passed, and as his recovery physically began to continue, his memory still wasn't coming back. So they called the police, and the police came out and checked him out, did some fingerprint scanning, and put some bulletins out to see if this man's family would claim him. Nobody came. Months went by, and finally they contacted the FBI. The FBI came in, ran fingerprints, scanned, did some things, and ran all of his prints through a national database. And still, there was no one that stepped forward to claim this man. He could not remember who he was, and no one claimed him. It got to be so well known that Dr. Phil... You guys know Dr. Phil? Dr. Phil brought this guy on his show, uh, told his story, and, and broadcasted it you know, through the corporate media airways into our world through television to tell people about who this guy was, and still no one claimed this guy. I heard this illustration from another pastor, and I, I did some research on my own. It's been 10 years, and still this guy does not know who he is, and no one has claimed him. Now just think about your life for a second. How scary would it be for something to happen to you that where you woke up the next day and not only did you not remember who you are, no one comes to claim you from your family. It'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? But I would submit to you that while physical amnesia would be scary for us, especially prolonged amnesia, I would submit to you that spiritual amnesia is much more dangerous. For those of us that know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, forgetting who we are and forgetting whose we are is potentially more dangerous than even physical amnesia. And here's why. Who you are has a great deal to do with what you do and how you live your life. How you see yourself, how you understand who you are and who God's made you to be shapes and forms everything about how you live your life. And so with my last opportunity together with us in the Word today, I want to remind you of who you are and whose you are. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in Romans chapter 8, verse 
12. I'm going to be reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. We read these words. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together, church. God, I pray in these moments that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we want you to move and to work through your word to impress upon us what you have to say to us. Lord, as we hear from your word today, would you help us not only be hearers of your word, but also doers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I want to start this morning by starting at the end of the passage and working our way forward. And what I want to start with as we look at the end of this passage is comparing two ideas. I want to compare what this passage teaches about our identity to what maybe our culture and the world teaches. What this passage teaches in several places is that you and I have been given a received identity. Notice verse 14 in your Bibles. It calls us sons of God. Skip down to verse 16. It says that we are God's children. And verse 15, it talks about how we've been adopted by Christ. What the Bible teaches is that we are to live our lives according to a received identity rather than an achieved identity. Now, your identity is where you find your worth, your value, your purpose. When, when you think about your identity, you can wrap it up in this question, who are you? Um, your worth and your value typically come from how you answer the question, who am I? And what this passage is saying is that we should not find our worth and our value and our peace and purpose from something we've achieved on our own strength and ability. Rather, we should find our worth and value and peace and purpose from something that we've received. Now think about what you've achieved. Achieved identity. Some of those things are things like your education, your money, your possessions, your position or station in life. Maybe it's your job. It could even be your nationality. These are things you've achieved in your life based on your strength, based on your ability But what this passage tells us is that there's an incredible danger about placing our worth on something we've achieved. There's an incredible danger and liability to letting my worth and my purpose come from what I've achieved rather than what I've received from Christ. Tim Keller is a a pastor and author who's written a lot about this. And in one of his books, Making Sense of God, 
he talks about a, a critically acclaimed author named Benjamin Nugent. Benjamin Nugent was so wrapped up in his achieved identity as an author that he actually had to stop writing for a while. And he wrote about why he had to stop writing. And I want you to listen to this quote about how he described his struggle. He said, When good writing was the main goal of my life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. Did you hear that? He said, I made the quality of my work as a writer the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well, he says. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate what I had written to see what was on the page. You see, when you live according to an achieved identity, you make the quality of your work the measure of your worth. What I'd like to draw your attention to, however, in this passage is the received identity we have in Jesus. I want to show you two things about what we have in Christ if you know him as Savior and Lord. The first thing we've received from Christ is adoption. Notice your Bibles, verse 15, how Paul describes this adoption. He says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says that we've not received a kind of gift from the Lord that makes us shrink back in fear or terror from Him. Rather, we've received an adoption from our Heavenly Father that draws us close to Him. In other words, what you could say about this adoption is that what was said about Jesus at His baptism has been said about you and me in Christ. You guys remember when Jesus was walking the earth and He came to be baptized. He came to John the Baptist, and he was baptized, and and something happened. When Jesus was plunged beneath water and he came back up, something happened pretty dramatic, right? The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, and then God the Father made a declaration about him. Do you remember what he said? He said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. What this is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, is God has made the same declaration over you. If you are in Christ, you are adopted in such a way that God looks at you and says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. The result of this adoption is that we have the opportunity to call God our Abba, Father, This was a term of affection that a child would use to speak to her or his father. I'm very pleased to report to you that in the Plumley household, we've hit a new uh, season or new era in the nighttime routine. You guys know that in a family, you've got to have a nighttime routine, right? You, with little kids, you have to walk them through a certain process that ramps them up to bed so that you're not up all hours of the night. You have to prepare them. Well, just in the last week, Paige Allison Plumley, my little two-year-old girl, has decided to finish the nighttime routine by crying through her monitor 
Daddy. Daddy. And I run up those stairs as fast as I can. And last night I said, I'm coming, Paige. And she said, okay. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, just the, the, the conversation I'm able to have with my two-year-old. But what do I do? I walk into her room and she says, Daddy. And she holds out her arms and I, and I hoist her up in the air and I pray with her. I love on her and I give her a kiss and I put her back on the bed, right? It's a sweet, sweet moment in the Plumley household when dad gets to finish the nighttime routine with his little girl. This is the kind of relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. It's an intimate, personal, close relationship that through Christ we can say, Daddy, as if we're talking to our Heavenly Father who loves us. To be sure, Paul wants us to understand that this includes emotions, that this is an emotional connection, that we've not received a, a spirit that causes us to shrink back in terror or fear of God in kind of a I'm shaking in my boots kind of fear, but rather we have an opportunity to draw close to God and know Him personally and intimately. But let's be honest, sometimes we don't always feel close to God. Even though we have this adoption in Christ, even though he says we're his beloved children. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I don't always feel like I'm super close to God. Notice verse 16 and listen to what the Spirit does to help us through this. The Spirit whom he's given us himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Part of the beauty of what God's adoptive work in our lives does is he gives us himself. He doesn't just give us grace and this forgiveness like it's this can on a shelf that we kind of dump on ourselves or uh, just an antidote that we drink. No, the forgiveness and grace that God offers you and I comes through His own presence. And it's through that presence that God communicates to us, even in seasons of not feeling like we're close to Him, that we are God's children This speaks to the important role that emotions play in the Christian life. One of the things I want to do in my final message with you guys is I want to clarify that all of my comments over the last five years about how emotions cannot be in the driver's seat, that that we have to reject what our culture says, what if it feels good, or if you just follow your heart, you'll always be led right, that's wrong. Emotions are not your navigational system, but the scripture does teach that emotions have an important role and place to play in our lives as believers. Here's the way I would describe that kind of relationship that we're talking about here. If I'm driving in my car and I've got my phone out and I'm going to meet a friend and I don't know where I'm going, what do we always do now, right? We type it in our phone and our phone gives us the directions. What did we do before we had these things? Does anybody remember? But what happens if on the way there, my dashboard tells me I've got low air pressure on my tire? What happens if I'm driving and on the way there, it tells me there's an engine malfunction going on in my car? What am I going to do? If I'm a careful, wise driver, I'm probably going to pull over to the side of the road and look at what's going on. That's the way emotions function best in our lives. They're not the navigational system. 
but they do reveal things about our hearts. Just like those warning on the dashboard tell me something about what's going on in the car, my emotions reveal things that are going on in my heart. So that when I react a particular way to something with anger or fear or frustration, what God's giving me is the opportunity to say, whoa, why is this affecting me the way it's affecting me? Whoa, let me pull over to the side of the road here and figure out what's going on. Let me try to understand why I'm reacting the way. What, what is this situation and my emotional response revealing about my heart? I take those emotions and I sift them through the navigational system of God's word to figure out what to do next. But nevertheless, emotions have an incredibly important role to play in my life as a follower of Jesus. And part of what we've been given, brothers and sisters, is an adoption in which we can emotionally be close to the God of the universe because his spirit lives within us. But not only have we been adopted, what this passage secondly teaches about our received identity is we've been given an inheritance. We've been given a rich inheritance. Look in your Bibles at verse 16 going into verse 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This passage teaches that we have been given a rich inheritance, and part of the reason sometimes I don't think we get how beautiful this passage is, is there's a little bit of a misunderstanding culturally about what adoption is. A lot of times we we think about adoption in terms of what happens in 2018 with adoption, but we need to understand that culturally speaking, adoption was a life-changing, generational-altering event in the life of a person. In Roman culture, most of the people, the overwhelming majority of people were in abject poverty. Most of them were actually slaves in the Roman era. But what began to happen as Roman society evolved is Roman men that had positions of power and authority would oftentimes adopt sons that were not their biological children, but they would adopt them, train them, and leave a good bit of their estate to those young men. In fact, some of the Caesars that we know from history were not the biological children of the prior Caesar. They were adopted sons that that Caesar saw and saw certain qualities and abilities he wanted his family name to be associated with. But when that adoption happened in New Testament culture, it was a life-changing, generational-altering event because now that person has been moved from abject poverty into an inheritance in Roman culture that would shape that person's family for generations to come. Now, this is what Jesus has done for us. The reason Paul uses the terms adoption and inheritance is because he wants us to see that we've been taken from the abject poverty and darkness of sin, and we've been given a trajectory-changing, generational-altering event in which now we've been given an inheritance that is pure, undefiled, and unfading and will last forever. Do you see the beauty of what Jesus is giving us? 
This inheritance that he offers us that's spoken of here is more than just you and I changing just some kind of position in our lives. It changes our eternal destiny. And here's why. Notice in your Bibles how many times in verse 17 alone you're going to hear the phrase, with Christ. Look back at your Bibles. It says, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Three times in one verse we see the phrase, with Jesus. You see, what this is emphasizing is our inheritance has been won and accomplished through the victory of Christ. And because Christ is victorious, by faith, we share in his victory. All of us are deserving of a penalty of wrath and judgment because of our sin, because we've lied, we've stolen, we've disobeyed our parents, we've lusted. Because we've done these things, we deserve a penalty, a penalty that Jesus said, I'm going to take on myself. Jesus takes our penalty and defeats our penalty, rising again from the grave back to life, three days later. And what happens by faith is we're connected with Christ in such a way that what Jesus has won for us by faith is applied to our account. It reminds me of a scene I saw play out in 2007 with uh, one of my favorite basketball teams, the Dallas Mavericks. The Dallas Mavericks won the NBA title in 2007. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki, Tyson Chandler, Jason Kidd, uh, there was a really great team that they had, great team chemistry, and they went all the way to the finals and won. But what you may not remember, uh, because this is a pretty obscure sports statistic, is that in the offseason, the Dallas Mavericks traded and acquired a player named Karan Butler. And Karan Butler was an incredibly athletic, small forward. He could shoot. He could defend. He was meant to provide some depth to that team in a position where they were kind of thin and weak. But before the playoffs began, Karan Butler got injured. He was injured in such a way that he was not going to be able to play again for the rest of the season. And so one of the key pieces that they needed, that they thought they needed to accomplish their goal was gone. And even though Karan Butler did not play one minute on the playing floor during the playoffs that led to the Mavericks' ultimate championship, when the Mavericks were given their championship rings, do you know who also got a ring? Karan Butler. Didn't play a minute on the floor, was in a suit and tie on the bench the entire time, did not contribute in one measurable way to their victory, yet he shared in that victory. Now, church, that's exactly what's happened to you and to me. We did not contribute in the least to Christ's victory. We weren't on the playing floor of contributing to the spiritual battle that Christ won in one small way. And yet, even though we've not contributed to his victory, we share in that victory by faith. This is the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. This is the received identity we've been given in Christ. And so the most important question that you could answer and ask yourself this morning is, have I received this identity Jesus offers me? 
have I received the inheritance and the adoption that Jesus has won for me? You don't receive that just by being born into the right family. You don't receive this identity just by coming to church and doing religious things. The only way we receive this identity is by repenting of our sin. That's turning from our lying, our stealing, our disobedience of our parents. Turning from those things and trusting that Jesus died for us and that he rose again. If you do not know Christ, what our, our plea with you would be is to repent and trust Christ. But for those of you that do know Christ, here's the question you have to ask yourself. If you have received this identity, if you're not living according to an achieved identity, but a received identity, are you living in light of that received identity? Are you being who you are? Are you living in light of this rich inheritance that you've been given? What I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today is, what does it look like to live in light of your identity? What does it look like for this received identity to make its way out into my life? Notice verse 17 and the condition that Paul puts on this identity. He says, if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So he says, you've been given this wonderful new inheritance. But then he uses a curious word. He says, if, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul puts a condition on our future glorification. Now, this glorification here is talking about the fact that one day upon Christ's return or my death as a believer, I would be with him forever, perfect in heaven. But he says there's a condition on heaven, and the condition is that we must suffer with him. What is Paul talking about? Paul's emphasizing the fact that real faith is the only way to heaven, and real faith will always produce transformation and a real change. Okay, so listen very carefully, sweet people. What God is not saying And what Paul's not saying by the Holy Spirit is that we have to somehow earn God's favor, that we have to work for it and do certain things in order for God to be happy with us. But what he is saying is that the faith that Christ works in me and the the way the Spirit that's deposited in me works in my life is it's going to produce a change. And if there's no change, there's no faith. Now, I've told you guys before, Outside this window, up the hill here is is the uh, door to the offices. That is the coldest place in all of Miller County, right? And while we're having a heat wave today, I've got 51 degrees right now. We've had some pretty cold temperatures the last couple of weeks. And it's not uncommon for me to get to that door and for it to be locked and for my arms to be filled with stuff, right? You guys know the scene. You got a cup of coffee. You got your Bible. You got your bag. You got your stuff. And I'm fumbling around for my keys, right, trying to get the right key because there's only one key that'll, that'll go in there. And it just so happens that I have like five keys that all look the same. Anybody relate to this problem? So I'm fumbling through my keys. But here's the deal. There's only one key. And if I don't get the right key in that door, it's not going to open. What Paul is saying is that real faith 
The faith that produces a change in us is the only key that opens the door to final glorification with our Savior. The kind of concern I have is that some of us may think faith is a decision I made one time. Well, I, I filled out this card and I did this emotional thing. And no change in my life, but you know, the, I'm going to heaven because I got my get out of jail, get out of hell free card. That's not the faith that Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about the faith of your parents. He's not talking about the faith of your Sunday school teacher or some person in your life that you know that really loves Jesus. He's talking about in your life, the only door that opens this final glorification in heaven with Jesus forever is real faith. So our received identity should be showing up in a real faith that changes us. What does that change look like? Let's circle back around to verses 12 through 14. Notice how Paul unpacks what this real faith looks like in his discussion about sin. Look at verse 12. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated or enslaved to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. Paul says one of the primary ways we live out our received identity is by waging a war against sin. Paul wants to make it very clear, church, that if you know Christ, if you have been given this received identity in Jesus, you have been freed from the power of sin. So oftentimes we talk about how Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin, and that's right. By the grace and the blood of Jesus, we do not face wrath of God in an everlasting hell. But we oftentimes forget that Jesus also came not just to free us from the penalty of sin. This passage is teaching that Jesus has come to free us from the power of sin. That sin's power has been broken in my life. And then if I know Jesus, listen to me very carefully. If you know Jesus, you do not have to sin. Now, I didn't say you wouldn't sin. I just said you don't have to. Listen to what Paul says again. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated. We are not enslaved to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I'm not bound or determined to have to live according to my sinful desires. Why? Verse 13. Because if I live according to the flesh to sin, I am going to die. We need to be clear about what sin is because sin is very tricky. Sin does offer us pleasure. Parents, this is especially important as we're raising children. We have to help them understand that sin is fun for a moment. For the briefest of fleeting moments, sin offers me pleasure. But what the Bible teaches is that sin offers us a type of pleasure that actually destroys us. So you were made for pleasure. You were made to enjoy life and the goodness of God. And if you think about pleasure like a fuel, you were meant to run on a type of pleasure that comes from knowing Jesus. But just like a car that can run on the right type of gasoline, you can put the wrong type of gasoline in your vehicle. We can run on the wrong type of pleasure 
that rather than making the car run right and run smooth and run in a way that's efficient, we can run on a type of pleasure that actually begins to destroy us from the inside out. Just like you can put the wrong gasoline in your car and it can blow up your engine, you can run on the wrong type of pleasure that will destroy you. I've had friends over the years who I knew who um, were the picture of health. Think of one guy that was a runner and he was very athletic. And one day he came down with some symptoms. He was sick and he wasn't able to kind of get over these and it was kind of months going on. So he, he finally went to the doctor. And though he was the picture of health, the doctor told him that he had cancer. And within 30 days he was gone. How did that happen? On the outside he looked fine. On the outside, he looked great, but there was something going on inside him that was destroying him from the inside out. This is what sin does to us. It offers us a form of pleasure that looks good. It even feels good in the moment, but it's a type of pleasure like a cancer that kills us, destroys us, and warps our hearts from the inside out. What's the response that we have to have? What does our received identity lead us to do? Look at the rest of these verses. Verse 13. He says, Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. We are to have a lethal response to sin. Can you identify some sin in your life right now? What's that thing that trips you up a good bit? Maybe it's something that you are looking at on your computer or your phone. Maybe it's some words that you speak of gossip and hurt to others behind their backs. Maybe it's lust and pride that you're holding on to in your heart. What this passage is saying is all of those things were to have a lethal Response, we're to seek to put those things to death. I know we have some hunters in the room. It's not deer season right now, is it? Okay. Uh, When deer season comes, our church attendance drops a little bit because guys go to the deer blind, right? And while I've never done this, I'm told that what you're trying to do in that deer blind, guys, is you're trying to as quickly and as most efficiently as you can kill that deer, right? And in fact, some of you are so skilled, you know exactly where to shoot that animal so that it dies quickly. You're not there to wound it so that it traipses through the, the woods and you've got to chase it forever. You're there to put it down quickly. And this is what Paul is saying about sin. We're to put it down quickly. We're to not give it a foothold in our lives. We're not to leave the door cracked because we like how that feels. And, oh, by the way, nobody knows about it. It's not hurting anybody. No. Sin destroys us, and we're to have a lethal response to sin. Well, Spencer, how do I have that kind of lethal response? Look back at your Bibles. I'm really glad you asked that. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit of God, the one who leads us in verse 14, is the power that we need to kill sin in our lives. But I want to camp out here for a minute because I I want to make sure we understand what he's saying here. He's saying that the Spirit's the power we have to say no to sin and yes to Christ. But I would go a little bit further because I think what he's also saying is the Spirit 
has a particular function in your heart and in my heart into dealing with sin. The Spirit's function is to make much of Jesus. This is why you should be concerned if you're ever in a church that talks more about the Holy Spirit than they talk about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's function is to testify and shine a spotlight on Christ. Listen to John 15, 26. Jesus said, When the Counselor comes, the one whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is saying that the role of the Spirit is to testify about Jesus. So here's the point I want to make to you. I believe the primary way we let the Holy Spirit kill sin in our lives is we allow the Holy Spirit to grow in us a love for our Savior that crowds out and leaves no room for our sin. You see, behind every click on that phone or that computer when you look at pornography, behind every word of bitterness and gossip, behind every attitude of pride and lust is a belief at the deepest level of who you are that what sin offers me is better than what Jesus offers me. What fuels and feeds sin in my life and in your life is a belief that that pleasure that sin offers me is better than what Jesus offers me. Now, listen to me. I understand that not, you're not consciously thinking that way when we sin. I'm just telling you, at your heart level, at the core, at the root system of who you are, that's what's happening. What we need the Spirit to do is to cut off sin at the source. Yes, I want you to have accountability software on your phone and your computer. Yes, I want you to have people speaking in your life that are challenging you with the words that you speak. But at the core, what we need is the Spirit to cut off the source of sin in our lives that's perpetuating that. We need the Spirit to help us really believe that what Jesus offers us is better than what sin offers me. So in in military terms, what we're talking about, kind of as an illustration, is the idea of a supply chain, right? In ancient ancient warfare, soldiers were expected to supply themselves. They had to have their food and their equipment. They were responsible for all that on their own. But as military warfare got more advanced, they began to specialize, And what began to happen is military strategists would form a strategy in which soldiers on the front line were to focus just on fighting, just on engaging the enemy, and they would create these management systems, these supply chains, so that they could get equipment and food and water and provisions to the soldiers. So there's these intricate paths and plans by which supplies come so that the soldiers can focus on fighting. Now, if an enemy really wants to do damage and harm to an opposing force, one of the ways they can really hurt the opposing force is to cut off their supplies. Because if I cut off food and water and provisions and ammunition, eventually I'm going to be able to take out that enemy. This is what we've got to do with sin. 
we have got to cut off its supply at the heart level that's leading it to wage this warfare in our lives. What's the supply chain in sin's life, in the sin of my life? What's keeping it going? It's cutting off at the heart level the lie that tells me that what this sin offers is better than what Jesus offers. So here's the point I want to make for you, to you this morning as we close. My received identity in Christ, the reason it's so glorious is because it gives me a power that displaces the love of sin with the love of my Savior. What we need is a love that's so strong in our hearts that makes saying yes to Jesus and no to sin a joy. Because I see how great what Jesus really is and what he offers me and how much greater it is than this form of pleasure sin offers me. When you think about this, it reminds me of uh, the story about Jesus' birth. You guys remember when Joseph and Mary enter Bethlehem? Um, we're told that there was no room in the inn. And, and so what's kind of emerged in kind of popular Christian subculture is we've created this, this innkeeper, Right? And the innkeeper always says what? No room, right? And we've had children's pageants and performances where there's some little innkeeper. And that poor innkeeper has been quite maligned over the years, but he's actually not in the Bible. <laughs> uh, we, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable inference to draw about that narrative, that there was someone telling Joseph and Mary that there was no room, but it's not explicitly there. However, it does give us a good picture of what we should be doing with our hearts. We're saying to sin, there's no room. There's no space in my heart for that because I'm so in love with Christ that I don't have any space. I'm crowding out sin in my heart with the love of my Savior. That I'm experiencing the pleasure and the goodness of God's grace in Christ in such a way that what sin offers me is no longer attractive. Can I just, just be real candid with you guys? This is not just theory to me. This is how I have overcome sin in my life. I've had accountability partners. I've had software and phones. I've done all kinds of things. But the way that I've overcome sin in my life is in when I'm tempted in that moment, having the awareness of mind to speak the truth of God's word into my head and let it go to my heart to say, Jesus, I believe you're better. Jesus, I believe that you are better than what this sin is dangling in front of me right now. The way that we apply this truth to our lives together today is by recognizing that at the moment of temptation, our received identity means we've been given a power to say no to sin because we can truly believe that Jesus is better. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase growing in your faith. You've heard somebody say, I, I want to grow in my faith. Can I tell you what that really means? It's growing in the unwavering belief, trusting at the core of who you are, that Jesus is better than anything this world will ever give you. Some of you have been through the pain of cancer or some kind of health issue. Can I tell you what the Holy Spirit has given you in those moments? He's given you an opportunity to see that Jesus is better than even your health. 
Some of you have been through financial struggles and challenges with money, or you've been unsure about what the future is going to look like. Can I tell you what Jesus is giving you? He's giving you an opportunity to see that what you have in him is better than all the money in the world. Some of you have been through the pain of some kind of issue with a family member, a wayward child, a a strained relationship with a member of your family. Jesus gives us an opportunity in these moments of difficulty and suffering to see that what we have in him is enough. That if I never have all my dreams fulfilled, if I never get all the things that I hope I get in life, that what I have in Christ is not just enough, it's more than enough. And as I leave you this day, my prayer for you as a church, as a people, would be that we believe at the core of who we are that this received identity unleashes a power in our lives to say no to sin and yes to Jesus because we believe that he's better. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. God, I pray In the strong name of Jesus, that you would remind us that our received identity unleashes a power in us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I pray for people here today who may be embattled by sin, maybe some habits or some addictions in their lives, and I pray that today you would remind them afresh that the received identity you've given them in Jesus comes with it a power by which they can say, Jesus, even when I don't feel this way, I don't always know this is true in the deepest part of me, but I know, according to your word, that you're better. Would you help me believe that? Oh God, I pray for your people here today. I pray that you would let what you've done for them through their adoption and their inheritance crowd out any love for sin in their lives. Finally, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you. God, I pray that by your grace and for your glory, you would draw them to yourself. Oh God, I pray that you would open their eyes and you would show them what Jesus has done for them. That Jesus died in their place and he rose again. God, would you move and work in that kind of way right now? God, we love you, and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name.